I've been parenting for a little over 20 years. And I think internally, what I really want to do is be kind of like a helicopter parent. Like I read really good articles and I research stuff and I love to make charts and graphs. And I have a really extensive collection of Sharpies and markers that I can color code notes and assignments and tasks and to-do lists. So that's what I want to do, like internally. But over those 20 years or so, I have consciously stopped myself, acknowledged, yes, this is how I want to be. But in this situation, play it cool, mama. Like, just pretend like you're a free-range mom. Yeah, go ahead. You can ride your bike over to that place and just do whatever and you figure it out and you just need to get these three things done or this one thing done by the end of the day. Cool. Figure it out. Work it out. So sometimes I'm acting and sometimes I'm giving in to my like internal desire of like how I want a parent. But I think this is a common struggle with most parents. And it's why it's so fascinating that there's so many different parenting styles that sort of come to surface as we try to sort of evaluate not only what we're doing, but, well, what is she doing? What is he doing? Like, what else is going on? So we hear all these buzzwords like helicopter mom or free range mom or dragon mama or lawnmower parent or whatever. And all of these terms just seem to divide us because It really boils down to you, your personality, your children, how individual they are, and what they need. So parenting styles really fascinate me. I love to be able to stop and think, okay, so is what I feel like I should do in this moment really the right thing to do? Should I change my mind on something? Does this kid need a different sort of style or approach? And what's the harm in trying this or that or the other? Life gets easier if we figure it out together. Welcome to The Lisa Show. Parenting styles have really changed over the last years and probably most dramatically over the last two generations. I'm here with Dr. Frida Birnbaum, who's a psychoanalytic therapist, psychologist, also a mom with an unusual story. Welcome, Dr. Frida Birnbaum. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Now, you have a very unique story about parenting that's really led you to parent over the last 30 years in a very specific way. Can you tell me a little bit about your parenting experience? Well, what's interesting really is that the question you're asking is something extremely important for other people to know. What is it like parenting today compared to what it was before? And also having children when you're older, uh, is that something that's a stigma? Well, that stigma is no longer around. It's changing rapidly. Now women in their 50s are having children, and we're more fertile longer, and we have in vitro, of course. So that's some of the things that have changed. But for the children, parenting has changed because they are more involved with social media. And that's something that seems very isolating. But what I found out was that these kids have more worldly information than the younger generation because they're tuned into events, politics, science, technology. So when they come to the dinner table, they know all this stuff. 
So I know social media has been a negative, but it does have a lot of its benefits as well. Well, and we should note as well that you are the oldest woman in America to give birth to twins. Tell me a little bit about that. What kind of span do you have with the ages of your children? Well, I have my oldest is in his 40s already, mid-40s, and I have my youngest that just turned 15. Yes, I was 60 years old uh, when I had these twins, and unlike my decision not to tell anyone, everybody found out because they asked me to, and I figured I was being selfish. Why not let women know? What's interesting about that was that women did call me from around the world, women who felt repressed and they felt younger because I was having children older and they felt that maybe that age is not that old. So that's good. But what's interesting, the women in their 30s, they didn't see it the same way. They saw it as somebody who was selfish, too old. I wasn't going to live a long time. But the main thrust of it was that 60 is not old. And this was 15 years ago. So Age has changed. Society has to catch up with what age is for women today so women can tell the truth about what they're representing because they feel they're put into a hole, into a place of, oh, this is how old you are, you're 40, well, this is where you should be. But that's not true. Women in their 40s now are starting families. It's changed. Hey, it it is changing, and we see different trends for when people are having children, how many children they're having, and that affects their parenting style. What changes over the last, you know, 30-plus years have surprised you the most in parenting styles? That's a very important question. My first set of kids I had, I was happy if they went to college. Today, it's what college are you going to? And parents are paying the colleges off. So that's changed a lot, the education, the stressors of getting the grades and getting into the college uh, that seems to be so important. But the one good thing that's happened is the bonding of the families. I've noticed that parents want to be closer and spend more time with the children. And also the parenting style with the fathers are more nurturing today, which is wonderful. I see younger fathers with babies taking care of them. And the mothers are more often, not always, out there career-oriented. So there seems to be more of a balance. And some of my research showed also that children who have mothers who work outside the home, believe it or not, have more confidence. And yet, when I was working and going to school with my first set of kids, I was looked down on. Like, how dare I go to work, go to school, and I have children? Who do I think I am? This is not being a good mother. And I always was wondering, was I a good enough mother? But something inside me pulled me out to go to school and to get my PhD and to feel fulfilled. And now research is showing that parents who feel fulfilled and are happy, it trickles down to the kids, too. It makes a huge difference. So many different changes that you have been able to see firsthand. Yes. What has that been like to go through it sort of a second time, you know, emotionally? How did you feel? I was ecstatic. 60's not old. And whatever was going on out there, I never really cared because I never really listened to convention anyway. I always felt that society was sort of behind time. So I always did my own thing, but I was ecstatic.
go back a little bit to the parenting idea. There's so many trendy different kinds of ways to parent or ways that parents get labeled, right? Like you're a free range mom, you're a tiger mom, you're a helicopter mom. And I would be curious to ask you from your own experience, what are some things about parenting that you feel like never changes that all parents have to deal with? Children need structure. They need this support of a parent. They need to know that they can have confidence in themselves. That's one thing that the schools need to teach is confidence more than the grades. It's not about the material things because we forget about that. So that's one thing that's very important. We need to have uh, respect and kindness in the home, outside the home. Children need to have peer groups where they can identify with the right kind of activities for themselves as well. So that kind of bonding in a positive way, we all need that. You know, it's interesting because as you get older, you see that the most important thing is when somebody's kind to you and you know what's important. So those things haven't changed, the psychological aspects of bringing up a child hasn't changed. But as we're talking about the society, that's changed a lot with the cell phones and texting. And, you know, my kids don't call on the phone. I said, why don't you call me? Are you kidding me? Yeah, no, they would never call you. I know. My kids do the same thing. You know, my first three kids were little before there were cell phones and texting and things like that. And now it's just all there is. I'm curious, what are your rules for cell phone usage and and using the internet and that kind of stuff for your younger kids? I hate to say this. I don't have any rules because it's changed out there. You know, at night when I think they're alone, they're really with their friends and they're gaming. Uh-huh. So it's a social connection. They're not out late at night because they're entertained on Zoom with each other. I think it's much safer for the parents. It's much more relaxing for them, too, less stressful in many ways. So my rules are get good grades, do well in school, be nice to other people, have friends that you would be proud to have, and do what you think is correct, the right things to do for yourself and for other people. That's about it. We, we have dinner together. It's a nice time to connect. And then the rest of the day, they're basically on their own. Right now, school's over, so they're in elementary school showing something about some kind of project they were doing in high school. Mm-hmm. So I'm aware of what they're doing, but I let them make the decisions so they can feel confident when they get older that, They don't have to feel that somebody else has the answers. I feel like I'm in a weird phase because three of my kids are what I like to call baby adults. You know, they're they're living on their own. They're learning, you know, how to be an adult. And then I have two at home. And that push and pull to sort of like let them go and also keep an eye on them and ask about their emotional and physical well-being and things like that is a tricky dance that I'm sort of learning how to do and learning to kind of cut those apron strings a little bit more while still being a big support and then still having some, you know, good structure and rules for the younger two. It is a tricky phase, and I give you a lot of credit for dealing with all these different sets. 
what's important to know, everything we worry about, they grow out of and they're fine and we become wrecks from it. Right. But <laughs> I have a mother who who's very upset that her son is in his room all the time with his computer. But the truth is, that's what they're all doing. It's not unusual today to have that. And my son, who's 22 now, all the things I was worried about with him, he's not socializing, he's on the computer too much. Mm -hmm. Well, because of that, he's successful now, and now he's ready to meet someone. So every child is different. But they're not like us. One can be very outgoing and make you uncomfortable, and one can be quiet and make you uncomfortable because of that. (laughs) But we learn from our children, as you know. So yes, a lot has changed, but a lot hasn't changed. And the emotional developmental stage of children are pretty much up to par. And in high school, the frontal cortex is still developing. Oh, yeah. Children's brains don't develop completely till they're 21 years old, 22 years old. So they're still learning and they are not as bad off as we think they are. Are you a single parent? I am. Unfortunately, my husband passed away two years ago. So I find I'm myself so sorry parenting. To hear that. Oh, thank you. I'm I, I find myself, yeah, parenting in a, in an absolutely different, you know, sort of environment than than I started with. And that change obviously affects like my style of of parenting. Of course, because it's all on you. You yeah. you don't have someone to say, you know, go to your father and talk to him about yeah, it. Yeah, I'm tired. <laughs> like hun, you take this one. <laughs> I know. Yeah. So it's more than anything we're talking about because you have to be a role model back and forth, back and forth. And you have a career too, which is wonderful for them to see that. But to have somebody to say, I'm tired, take over. Yeah. So I give you a lot of credit for what you're doing, more than what I did. Oh, no, thanks. I think that we're all just trying to figure it out the best way we can. And one thing that I do love about our generation right now is that there are so many conversations that we're having about, well, how do we do this right? Because we know it matters. No matter what our circumstances are, we all love our kids so much. And so I appreciate you being vulnerable and, and being able to not only share your research, but your experience over decades of parenting and sharing what you've learned because we all want to benefit from it. Well, we all, we all do, and that's true, and some people have it harder, and I appreciate your courage being able to support other women and what they're doing as well. That's very important. But most of all, we need to know it's not about the big events. I find myself, when I'm in the car with my kids, that's when you hear bigger things later on because they feel comfortable and supported. So it's a little moment here and there that I catch that I appreciate. But in general, women today have it harder because it used to be very set. This is what women did. This is what men did. And today there are options. So in one way, it's good. But the other way, you have to have the right kind of support system to have those options in place. So with men being more nurturing and women having careers, It's balancing itself off because men have less responsibility and women have more choices. But my research also showed that these women are less depressed because they feel that they're getting in what it is that they need to get in. So parenting has changed because 
the role models for kids have changed. In the past, women who saw mothers that were unhappy at home had careers. And women who saw mothers that were happy at home wanted to have that same lifestyle as well. And then there are women in the middle whose mother was ambivalent of where she was. And those women were me. And what I did was I got married first, and then I went to school because traditionally that was the right thing to do. But inside me, I felt there was something missing. Hmm. And women often feel that they have to make choices, but you can have it all. I had a stigma when I had a career and, and young children. How dare I? I do something like that. But today, women have all these choices, but they're overwhelmed. Somebody like you who doesn't have a partner, that's even harder to do. That's the difference in a parenting style. And you know, each child has to be looked at differently, too. One of my kids are very industrious, my twins. The other is very quick to learn in school, but in a different way. So I have to know what child has a different personality and who to connect to with that child. But the beauty of having kids, really, as you know, Lisa, mm-hmm. is they actually... <laughs> They grow up and they actually do well. Right. (laughs) And they're entertaining and they come back and they make me laugh and they help me out. And they're just so, uh, you know, mature and all the things that you worried about them, you know, when they were 13, 14, 15. And then when they come home and show you that they're great adults, there is a really great feeling about that. You know, and what's interesting about that, all the things they pushed away when you told them, they heard you. Yeah, they heard you. So don't feel that they're not hearing you. So parenting styles have changed. You know, you talked about the helicopter parents. It's still going on. I mean, when my kids were uh, the uh, youngest uh, children, the 15-year-olds, were in elementary school. One of the projects, they had to do something on a poster board, um, paint something, put displays on. Do you know that most of the parents did it for the kids? Yeah. So what was your reaction to it? I was very angry. How dare they yeah. do all this? Because it was beautiful. And my kids, you know, scribbled something on the posters. You could hardly see what it was. <laughs> so it was beautiful, and I was embarrassed that my kids was, looked so inferior. But then, of course, as you can imagine, I felt that my kids did the right thing. This is what, that's their project. Yeah. But all through school, the kids excelled. The parents was the one that pushed it. Now, I don't know if they're still excelling in school. You know, parents aren't in college when they're taking their tests. Yeah. You can't do these things for them. But that's changed. Parents have become more competitive, even more so, if you can imagine, more than the kids. The kids don't care as much. The competition uh, is more about the ego uh, than it is uh, being practical. I think school should change. You should uh, do what you feel is your calling. If you find out what it is to have more field experiences, more hands-on experiences. My kids memorize all the time. You forget it the next day. Mm-hmm. I, I feel that they're taught to be followers, not leaders, and they're pushed out there, and they say, go ahead, now do your thing, and they, they don't know what they're doing. So hmm. there's a lot that hasn't changed that I really feel needs to change the way 
children, the way students are taught, there's a lackluster of joy in what they're doing. It's mm-hmm. just doing a task instead of understanding what it is and getting some kind of interest that would help them to know what they want to do. Because my kids, they're 15, they don't really know. They know maybe engineering, maybe something like this. They're still trying figuring they it have out. To have that yeah. exposure. Mm-hmm. So that needs to change, really. Oh, these are great, great suggestions and and a great perspective on the really like the direction of, of of education and how we can support each other, you know, as parents as well in what really matters when we're raising our kids. I think parents are confused. They become over obsessed with their kids. Leave the kids alone. Let them be who they are, and you'll be happier. You'll be less anxious. The kids are anxious as well, and. They know more than you do often. You just have to help to guide them. Find out what it is that they want and help them to get there. Because many people, as adults, look back and they're still trying to retrieve who they were and what they wanted. But life sort of got in the way. We need to be able to give our kids that kind of joy and know that they're doing something that they're joyful about, that they feel can make a difference. And then every success will come. But that has to be first. We're too achievement-oriented. And our lives have to be full of feeling um, as if we are in the moment and that we are doing something that can make a difference to us and other people because we have too much delayed gratification. Especially men have had that, that they don't know how to enjoy themselves. It's all about going ahead and being successful, and it's sad because success can only give you so much. Now, they say $75,000 a year is what you need uh, to be comfortable in life, and people feel that if they make more, they'll be happier. Relationships are what makes you happy. It's not having more money, having more things, men having more toys, none of that stuff. It's all a distraction uh, for what's really important. So if your children are trying to make you happy because you want them to do this, you want them to have this career, it's really all about you. Uh, I went to school later in life. Uh, You can change your careers. You can reassess who you are. You can make changes in your life Yeah, you can change. With Mm -hmm. your relationship, with where you live. You can do all those things, but don't do it through your kids because... They have a feeling that you can't have. Let them be in the driver's seat. Life is not about um, being aggressive uh, and, and, and being on top. It's not about that. Yeah. It's about enjoying the moment, slowing down. You know, when you slow down, you can think more anyway. You can have that time to imagine what it is that you want and then find a way to work to get there. That's what we need to do rather than giving the message that success is what what it's supposed to be uh, for everybody. Success is what it's supposed to be for you individually. Everybody has a different pace. You have five children. They all have different uh, success. Yeah, absolutely. And definitions of it. Is that right? Absolutely. And I can see that now 
that my kids get older and the things that I worried about when they were younger. And it's just <laughs> such lost time, right? <laughs> of like, oh, it didn't matter. They're going to go at their own pace as they should. And, and, and you want them to be at peace, fine. right? And not just your definition of success. When I talk to parents now, I think 80% of our conversations are really about technology because it's so new. And we can't ask our parents and our grandparents what they d did because a lot of this didn't exist. So I wanted to get straight to the source from someone who parents and studies, you know, this kind of technology and internet usage and how it specifically affects our parenting. I'm here with Michael Robb, Senior Director of Research at Common Sense Media. You write and research extensively about the effect that screen time has on children and teens. What do the recent studies about children and screen time suggest? So we just did a study in 2021 looking at the media habits of kids between the ages of 8 to 18. And what we found was that media use in tweens and teens has grown faster since the start of the pandemic a couple of years ago than it had over the four years prior to the pandemic. So, for example, from 2015 to 2019, media use for tweens grew only 3%, and for mm -hmm. teens it was 11%. But in the last two years, it grew by almost 20% for both tweens and teens. So it's quite a bit. Yeah, that's and, uh, very significant. Talk, yeah, it, it's a lot. I mean, a lot of times when I do these studies, I'm looking to see, like, are we ever going to hit a ceiling, <laughs> you know, when it comes to kids' media use? And uh, we haven't hit it yet. So it's something that we're going to keep monitoring in years to come. So if we haven't hit a ceiling yet, do we have any indication of, of what this might mean and of where it's going? I don't know exactly where it's going. I mean, my sense is that a lot of the additional, additional media use is actually kind of spread across lots of different media. So, you know, it wasn't just like kids are spending more time doing video games or more kids are spending time doing social media. It's lots of incremental increases in each of those. Mm -hmm. But I do see some shifting in the fact that there's more of a shift away from kind of traditional TV viewing and even like, you know, streaming on Netflix or Hulu to more online video like YouTube and TikTok. And I think that is something that we'll continue to see in, in years to come. I know, it's funny. My kids make fun of me. They say, you think it's better if we just sit down and watch a show than if we just watch TikTok videos one after the other? And I said, I do. I think it's different. I think that your attention span is different. It's telling an entire story. I don't know why I feel this way. What does the research say about the effect of this specific kind of difference in media? So that's a great question. One of the things that research consistently shows is that co-viewing, that is, you know, watching something with your kids is really good. Right? It's really good for young kids because it's an opportunity to you know, help them learn about things that they might not otherwise know about. And it's good for all kids because it's a time for kind of family bonding. Yeah. And you know, when you're sitting and watching something with your kids, like, you may get them to talk about the thing that you're watching on TV in a way that they wouldn't normally talk about like, you know, what they're doing during the day or at school. So it's a great opportunity for family engagement, for bonding, for having like kind of a moment of like, family warmth in a way that, you know, just watching TikTok videos on your phone by yourself, you're really not going to get. 
Yeah, that's what my gut says. <laughs> I'm, you know, when we talk to our kids about internet use and screen time, they are huge topics. What should we focus our questions and our conversations on? So I try to encourage parents often to have an open mind, right? Not to go into it with like a judgment or an accusation because that'll get your kids to turn off real quick. But just even asking them, you know, what's something that you're watching or what games are you playing? Or can you tell me about like a show that you like? or um, a character that you like, if you're talking about, like, young kids. Those questions could be really good conversation starters. I mean, like I mentioned, like, there are lots of kids who are not great at answering the question, you know, what did you do today, Mm -hmm. but who can talk at length about the media that they are engaged with. And I don't want to diminish the fact that, like, media is hugely enjoyable for lots of people, adults included. So, you know, asking kids about what they're doing, or even, you know, if you're a parent who's dealing with a kid on social media and you're, like, afraid of what they're doing, being open and saying, like, can you just show me what you're doing? You know, like, show me what's going on on Instagram. You know, they may not show you the full picture of what they're doing on Instagram (laughs) or what they're doing on TikTok, but it's at least a step in the right direction to make them feel comfortable in coming to you and talking about the things that they're seeing and hearing Mm -hmm. online. What is it that parents miss when we have these conversations with our kids or when we talk about screen time or their media habits? I think parents often miss the distinction between quality and quantity. And what I mean by that is I think for a while now, media researchers have been advocating a shift from evaluating the quantity of screen time to the quality of content. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if your kids are engaged with high-quality content that's, you know, stoking their curiosity or it's fueling their imagination or it makes a really good conversation fodder, you know, who's to say that that should just end automatically when you hit one hour or an hour and a half, mm-hmm. right? Because what the research shows is that there's not a great relationship between how much media a kid uses, and lots of different kinds of negative outcomes. But you can find stronger relationships huh. between the kinds of things that they're doing online or what they're watching and certain kinds of outcomes. Oh, that's such an interesting idea, and I want to ask you a little bit more about the specifics of that. Obviously, yeah. if you're on, like, an Instagram, and, and this is what we worry, and, and we've seen the results of this from studies for especially the preteen girls, their body attitudes are negatively affected by more time on platforms like Instagram. What are some other sort of maybe problematic warning behaviors that parents can look for to be aware of of their kids with screen time that we might not be considering? I mean, I try... So when parents are really worried about, like, what their kids are doing online, stop and take a breath first. Yeah. <laughs> um, and think about the other things that are happening in your kid's life, right? And try to go at it from that angle. So what are the things that we know are good for kids' development? You know, we want to make sure that they're getting good nutrition, that they're getting a good night's sleep, that they have time and opportunity to socialize with friends online or offline, that they get some time to go outside, that they have time to read and do their homework. There are lots of things that we know are really well connected to healthy child development. Parents should be concerned when the screen use is replacing those things that you know are good for kids' health. Mm. Right? So you can have kids who are both using some, you know, eight hours of media a day. One kid's still getting good sleep and is doing fine in school and seems happy and, you know, is socializing with their friends. And another kid is using it eight hours, and it's delaying their bedtime two hours longer than it should be, and they're isolated and they're locking themselves in the room and they're not connecting with any kind of friends or peers. And those are two very different situations that, you know, through which screen time itself doesn't really tell you much. So you kind of have to be aware of, like, where your kid is otherwise with the other things that we know are important for their development. And also try to keep 
you know, an eye on the things that we know are problematic online, right? So I mentioned body image already, but yeah. cyberbullying would be one. And usually kids who are bullied offline are more vulnerable online. If your kid is exposed to, you know, certain kinds of like racist speech or hate speech mm. online, you know, that would be another risk factor for kids. So there are like, I would say things that are kind of more content related that I would be on the lookout for rather than just only on Instagram or only on Snapchat or, or TikTok or things like that. Yeah. I've noticed in in other parenting and certainly in my own parenting, different phases of when I feel like I'm sort of in control and when I'm kind of hands off, right? <laughs> like yeah. of just like, oh, it's, you know, for whatever reason, and some of them can be very good reasons. And so I'm wondering about different kinds of media and how we should really view it in a total health kind of mindset, which is what I feel like you're really advocating for. Should parents then be super worried if, say, their kids are sneaking around or watching, say, like R-rated movies or maybe mature content shows, you know, and hiding you know, certain app from them? What does the research say about that? So when a child is hiding something from you, like that's not necessarily uncommon, especially in the teen years, that is a behavior that existed long before there was social media or, you know, really large concerns about screen time. If a kid wants privacy, I think that's one thing. Mm -hmm. If you see that desire for privacy, but that goes hand in hand with like real big changes in mood or, you know, a real decline in grades or kind of other external factors that, you know, might be more red flags, then I think it's more of a time to step in and try to do a check-in. And if they don't want to talk to you and charge them to talk to either another family member or a counselor or a pediatrician or friend or somebody, just to get a handle on how they're doing. But like just just wanting your privacy and, you know, engaging in kind of typical team behaviors, I don't think there's necessarily a something that should set off like lots of alarm bells. Sure. Unless it's accompanied by these other kind of concerning behaviors. Well, that's good to know because I think a lot of parents, they don't know what to do in that moment. And for example, you know, you mentioned bullying a little bit earlier. How would you know that things like that, like bullying or really poor body image and things like that are happening? Do you get super hands-on involved or is there another sort of parenting approach you could take? I mean, that's going to vary from family to family. Different families have different approaches and different values when it comes to those kind of topics. For some parents, they're going to be you know, wanting to like monitor their kids' media use very closely and being able to, you know, actually go onto their kids' Instagram feeds and see like what they're looking at. For other parents, they're going to be, you know, trusting their kid to make their own decisions, but trying to engage in conversation. I'd say that it's always good to just make sure that your child knows that you are there if they are encountering things that are worrisome, scary, troubling to them, if they have concerns, that you will be there for them in a place that's like not coming from a place of, of judgment, right? From a place of like help. Because if a kid feels like, okay, I'm have been doing or have encountered a lot of things online that are, you know, harmful or worrying. And if mom or dad's first reaction is to freak out about it, that may make it so that they are less likely to confide or share in the future. So trying to keep an open line of dialogue, I think is like a really important way to try to handle, you know, some of those difficult situations. Yeah. How hands-on are you with your parenting, yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yes. What does it look right. like I'm at your house? <laughs> I, I am a parent of a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old. So for me, I want to say it's a little bit easier, right? Because I don't have teenagers. And so I do have a little bit more control over what they do. And for me, I'm, you know, very cognizant of the fact that I don't want screen use to replace the important activities that I want for them. And I also know that I want them to watch good stuff. So for me, my, my hands-on approach is more like I'm not going to force you to watch or do something, but I'm, I am going to give you like a menu of options. 
right? I'm going to basically plant the garden from which you can, you know, pull whatever you want out of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, for me, I still have a little bit more hands-on control, but I am fully aware that if I want my child to be resilient and safe moving into, you know, his teen years, then he's going to need to learn how to be independent without me and make his own choices and learn what to do when they encounter things that are bad online. And that means that I'm going to have to have some uncomfortable conversations. I'm, I've already started to have some of those uncomfortable conversations with my 10-year-old. Yeah. Right? And some people might say that fourth grade is too young to start talking about, you know, pornography or, you know, really violent content or online safety. Like, you know, like does a 10-year-old really need to know about this stuff? Yes. They, yeah, they do absolutely. In a lot of cases because yeah. if you don't take that opportunity... Somebody else is going to take that opportunity. Yeah, they're being marketed to. And it is scary as a parent because I do think some of our intention in keeping them safe is to sort of, you know, overreact in the moment. But if we can take a step back and really look carefully at what we're trying to teach them in an overall you know, sense. And like you say, as a garden, you know, really trying to present all of these different things for a healthy life, it makes more sense. It does make sense. And I think there's a... a Wonderful child researcher named Allison Gopnik, who actually extends that metaphor of the gardener. You know, there's different kinds of parenting. You know, you could think of yourself as a carpenter where you're trying to build like one thing in a particular shape, or as a gardener, you kind of like set the conditions the way that you want them and see what grows. And for parenting, I mean, she really advocates, and I really agree with the fact that it's, it's good, and when it comes to media as well, to try to set the right environment, have the right conversations, and kind of facilitate the good growth experience rather than trying to shape exactly what you think it's going to be, because that's going to be really difficult and frustrating for everybody involved. Yeah, and spoiler alert, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, right. When we really want to get to the heart of the matter, we assemble a council of moms. That's what we've done today. And here we have... My name is Angie King. I have five kids. My oldest is 22 and my youngest is 10. And being a mom is hard. I'm Taylor Ricks. I have an 11-year-old, a 9-year-old, and two 7-year-olds. And we're just in the thick of parenting and it's a ton of fun. And I'm Jeanette Bennett. I have five kids. The oldest two are married. So I have, I'm a mother-in-law. And then I have two in high school and one in fourth grade. I grew up with just this wonderful stay-at-home mom, and I've been an entrepreneur, and so I've been different than my own mom, and I'm still figuring it out. We're all figuring it out. That's why we're here together. So I appreciate your time. I'm going to dive right into it. There's a lot of talk, both generationally and just style-wise, about what the right way to parent is, right? And so I'm just really curious as to how you would categorize your own parenting style. I would say I'm low on rules, high on expectations, and high on love. I like that. Leveling. You're like leveling up. Yeah, I, I haven't been big into rules. I don't really like to make them and enforce them and argue over them. So I just kind of like to talk about, okay, the goals and then— yeah. Leave it at that for the most part. Gosh, I don't know. I would say that my style of parenting is a little bit ADHD. <laughs> I feel like it's just every kid is so different. I feel like I'm just constantly reinventing and the wheel, really, for parenting. And I'm 
leaning on people a lot for advice. My mom friends, my single friends have great young adult advice because I I really wasn't a young adult. I got married really young, so I don't know that world. And I do think probably a big part of mine is leaning on friends and just a lot of prayers. <laughs> so your parenting style is prayer, prayer-based. <laughs> prayer-based parenting. <laughs> uh, I would say that I'm pretty chill. I'm not super strict or anything. And I try to kind of meet my kids where they are. So I definitely like feel out the situation and try and like hear their points of view. So I think I have like guidelines and things, but it's like if I need someone to clean their room, I'm like, I just need it done by Saturday and like super Mm. like make it happen. And I, I just don't like contention. And so I found by doing that, I have less contention in the home. So just a little more go with the flow, I guess. I feel like there's a lot of chatter out there about how hands-on you are, right? We'll read a lot of different articles about specific styles that really grab headlines, like free-range kids and, you know, helicopter parents, particularly helicopter moms or lawnmower parents. And, like, there's all these, like, terms that are just sort of thrown around. And I wonder what the reality is. And so kind of along the same lines, how hands-on are you with your kids and that style? I thought I'd be more hands-on than I have been. Really? Like, I take music, for example. So I play the piano and organ, and I, I enjoy it, and I thought all my kids would love it too. All of them have taken piano, but what I realized is when it's, okay, it's time to practice the piano, and I go in there and we get started, but then the doorbell rings or the phone rings, and I wander off, and they wander off. I really think the only kids that get good at music are hand who have hands-on moms hmm. that sit there and no let's keep going and let's focus and let's try that again and and I failed at the music thing none of them play the piano despite many lessons and many arguments <laughs> and, you know and maybe if I'd been more hands-on they would have done that but it just didn't fit me yeah so you did what was necessary like for your own kids right and also I think when you have we all have five or four I think around the table that's a lot of kids and it's really hard to be hands-on with every kid on everything. That just sounds like micromanaging exhaustion to me. I also wonder what the expectations are, too, like with society. I think that culturally, there was an expectation of like, why aren't you watching your kids? Or you need to keep an eye on them. Or if they like sort of stepped out of turn, it was sort of judged from the outside in. And I think as society, we don't do that as much. But maybe I'm wrong. We certainly still judge parents <laughs> harshly. I'm not saying that. But with the whole like different parenting styles of like letting your kids express themselves. I mean, there's this huge range, right? Because you could have a, some parents that are super involved in, you know, their kids' social lives and what classes they take and that kind of stuff. But you might, it might not appear that they're that involved. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think that's really an interesting idea. And I wonder, how has that evolved over the years for you as parents? Younger kids, I feel like as far as involvement, I I had a nice balance of free range, but also being involved enough that, like, my kids weren't the feral neighborhood children. But as they become teenagers, it's a whole whole new ballgame as far as involvement because things right now are so competitive, whatever your kid wants to do. Like, even if your kid wants to be a chess player and competitively play chess, there's a lot that goes into that. I feel like sports, if your kid wants to play baseball, they better be playing at age three, and then you've got to get them in the special camp and the special trainer and, like, 
speed and agility. There's just a lot of involvement that way that I think sometimes I struggle with knowing like, is my kid not going to have a hobby because I'm not finding them this thing that they can do? So I don't know if that's more, I feel like I find myself in the middle of that all the time. I find myself struggling with that a lot too of saying, you know, your kid will say, I want to do baseball and he wanted to do baseball in eighth grade. It was too late. Yes. It was too late. He And it wasn't fun because it was just a league that no one cared and no one was like coaching or teaching. And then I'm going through the kind of the same thing with my daughter who's like, I want to play tennis again in the eighth grade. And, you know, it's not like I'm not asking them what they're interested in. It's just we have the special society where, yeah, if you don't start at three and you do wonder how much you you limit that. And that's part of that sort of parenting because my idea is, oh, you should just have hobbies. It doesn't matter if you're how good you are or if you're in a competitive team, just do something that you want to do forever. But they don't always see it that way. Mm -hmm. Right. I think that you can start something at three and not be natural at it and it doesn't go well. Like, you can do something for 20 years and be bad at it. Like, trust me on that. And so (laughs) I think it's okay for our kids to just be. Yeah. It's okay for them to take time to figure out what they love. It is okay to start tennis in eighth grade. And they could become really good at it, even if they didn't start at three, if that's their thing. I think there's just too much pressure on that. And, like, deciding my destiny at, at a really young age, like, here I am now, and I've, you know, been starting things and dabbling in things that I would have never dreamed yeah. would be where I would be. And that affects and, your parenting. Yeah, and I just think it's okay. There are people who put their whole life into being this amazing dancer and spend thousands and thousands of dollars and all of this stuff, and, like, they, sweetheart, you're just not flexible, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm glad turn. you love it and love it and embrace it and do it f- because you love it. Um, but not necessarily because I'm going to be on Broadway, maybe. Maybe it's okay to just do things that we love as we love them mm-hmm. and leave. be okay and brave enough to leave things as we don't love them. And so I think that's my huge thing with parenting is I had a little tiny baseball player that I was like, he's going to be great. And he just isn't. Right now he likes coding or whatever. And so that's what we're going to do. And that's okay. And maybe someday he'll like baseball again. And if he's natural at it, he'll be able to work hard and get there if that's what he wants to do. And so, yeah. There's also some burnout. One of my daughters started gymnastics at three, was really good. She actually won the state all around meet as an eight-year-old. But then, like, the pressure heated up and moved up a couple levels. Anxiety kicked in. She's crying on the way to gymnastics. I don't know whether to say, toughen up, kid, or, oh, let's just go back home and eat popsicles. Like, I, that was one of my first really hard parenting things. How do we deal with this anxiety? She did end up quitting because she got really burned out, and the anxiety, which is something she still deals with, I think came from some of that intensity. So it's really hard it's to figure so out. But but. To play, at least in this community with big high schools, to play a sport in high school, the reality is it has to kind of be your passion from an early age. But playing a sport in high school is not the predictor of life happiness and success. (laughs) Well, and I was going to say, too, isn't it interesting that we're, you know, asking about parenting styles and we're really talking about our kids' interests and how we're able to guide them through. And I think that that is like a main through line for parenting. We we want to guide them and, and to help them and assist them 
to just really discover who they are. But I wonder how much, though, of our life circumstances affects our parenting that maybe we underestimate. So, you know, I have been a stay-at-home mom. I've been a part-time working mom, freelancer. I've been a full-time working mom. I've been married. I've been a caregiver (laughs) for a spouse while parenting, and now I'm a widow. And those are six huge different life changes, and I would be so naive to say that it didn't affect how I parented. And so I am curious, what have you learned about mothering and your parenting style based on your circumstances? I do think there are stages of life, and it can also be your spouse's stages of life. My husband suffers with depression, and sometimes I'm like, oh my gosh, like, I'm doing this all by myself, you know? But I think sometimes we have to, like, allow grace for other people and for— our spouses or for us. I mean, I struggled with postpartum depression with my last baby only. And it was so confusing because I'd had four other babies and everything just comes into place. And then all of a sudden I'm like, what is wrong with me? You know? And so we had to figure that out. And I think Seth had to give a lot more than I did. And I just think at the end of the day, you just have to allow yourself grace. And you have to understand that your kids allow grace more than you think. Mm -hmm. I think you'll get sometimes your kids feeling really neglected because you're going through something and they might say something to you that hurts your feelings. Maybe that, oh, this mom makes her kids breakfast every morning and you just have us have cereal. I just think we have to sometimes allow our children grace and realize that they're young and they're still figuring it out and not beat ourselves up all the time because life is hard and parenting is hard and it's okay for our kids to see us struggle. And I think we don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. But I think it's so important because I didn't really see my parents struggle. They kind of kept that all pretty quiet. And then I grew up and my parents were normal. And that was kind of hard to wrap my brain around. So I think think it's just okay. I I really think grace in life and forgiveness is just part of it. And we have to be okay with not being perfect. And for women— That's so hard. We have social media Mm -hmm. all around us showing us. We can just go on our phone and be like, oh, my gosh, that mom, she did this birthday party, and there's a balloon arch. And And everybody goes on vacation all the time. Everyone's physically fit. Yeah, and then your kids. And eats plant-based food. Yes. So much food prep, so many chopping vegetables daily. You know, but I think you're right, Lisa, that our life circumstances, it affects how we— how, How we, we parent. parent. It does. And and I've noticed when I'm busy or stressed, you know, I'm shorter with the kids. I, I'm not really looking them in the eye, talking to them. I'm like, okay, let's go, let's go, let's go. And I've noticed that if I come back to the kids later and I'm like, you know, I'm sorry that I didn't listen. I had this project that was on my mind and, and I'm sorry. You know, that actually goes a long way. And they soften. We both soften. And it's, I think it's good as parents to apologize Yes, I agree. And I think it's okay to change your mind. I used to think, I'm not going to let my kids suffer just because their dad's sick. They're not going to be affected by it either. I'm going to just, just because I need to go back to work doesn't mean that they're not going to get the kind of mom that, I just, I don't know why I put those imaginary sentences (laughs) in my brain. And my kids were just fine if I wasn't doing the same thing. I think it was just a personal journey for me of like, this is what I want to be like. Mm -hmm. And when life changes and you have to adapt and you should adapt and it's, totally appropriate. When you do, that's a good thing instead of saying, you know, somehow I'm going to keep everything the same. I think that caused me unnecessary frustration for a long time. And to say, well, this is the parenting style that I need to do right now, and it's going to be okay. 
Yeah, and I think like trusting that our kids can handle it. I guess I should give a little example. So I mentioned I have a son that has Down syndrome. And so for a long time, you know, we cater a lot of what our family does to what his needs are, which I can kind of on a small scale relate to you saying being a caregiver in that everyone's focus shifts a little bit and the way we do things shift a little bit. And so for me, that was a hard transition of like, well, they're missing out on these things that their friends could do or that other kids their age can do because I just physically can't take all four of them to do that with this circumstance or I just can't do that. And I just realized like they're gaining something different and equally beautiful that's going to help them grow in a different way and in the way that they need to grow and that our family needs to grow. And I think allowing that that grace and that it's okay for this phase of life to be different. And I see my kids have a maturity and an understanding that other kids at their age just don't have. And I know that they're being prepared for bigger things and greater things because of it. And I was trying to shield them from that growth. Yeah. My cute little nine-year-old daughter just says all the time, she's just like, I pray every day that I get to have a child with Down syndrome, or I feel so bad for families that don't get that experience because she's like, I've learned so much and it's such a joy that I wouldn't have any other way. And so I think sometimes I try to protect my kids from things that they need (laughs) and that I need. And sometimes I try to shield them from my trials or something, but they're theirs too. And, you know, to get a little religious, like, God gave it to them, too, and he trusts them with it, so I can trust them with it. I love what Taylor said, and it reminded me, I grew up in Idaho Falls among farm fields. My dad was a school teacher, but our house was in the middle of the farm fields. And, you know, a farm family, the farm is, it belongs to the whole family. I, I think in our in our more urban societies, kids don't even often know what their dad really does for a living or their mom, but on a farm the stress is the whole families, the harvest is the whole families, the needs are of the whole family. And I think that's a really brilliant way to live is for the whole family to know what the goals are and to not shield them from all the stresses and and even the money stresses. You know, I think sometimes to say to our kids, hey, this month we have $200 or whatever it is and let them in on that, I think is a gift rather than a a hindrance, you know, to really let them know this is what our family farm, whether that farm is, you know, engineering or whatever. You're going to coin a new phrase. It's like, what's your parenting style? Family farming. (laughs) Yes. The family farm. I like that. I actually really think it would be a great one. We're Mm -hmm. all in this together and we're unified for a common purpose. Yeah. And I think they would become better spouses and parents someday when they see that it's a a team effort from a young age. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. I know with my teenagers, my husband sometimes is surprised that, not that they're hard, but he's surprised by the hard things. And I go back mm -hmm. to thinking about my husband's family when he was 12. His little brother got diagnosed with leukemia and his dad got diagnosed with a brain tumor. And so his perspective just shifted. And I mean, I think he would trade a healthy dad to know what it's like to have hard teenagers. But I look back and I think your parents had like the most beautiful, wonderful teenagers because you were living in a world where you might lose your dad. And so those moments mattered so much. And I I look at my kids and they haven't had something like that and they don't realize how precious those moments are. So I love that you said that like God gave that to them too. I think that's so beautiful. The Lisa Show is a production of BYU Radio. This week, our show was produced by Lisa Valentine-Clark and McKay Menden. 
with help from Angela Larson and Michael Combs. We would love to hear your feedback about the show. You can reach out to us on Instagram or Facebook or email us at thelisashow at byu.edu. Next week on the show, you hit rock bottom and you look around your house and you go, how did I get here? And it was that realization of, oh my goodness, being organized is more than just the physical space. It's the mental space as well. And by healing my physical space, I was able to heal my mental space and intertwine the both of them into understanding how to be completely organized. That's next week on The Lisa Show. 